Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. May God bless the preaching of His Word. The sermon will have five points, trying to serve the note-takers in our midst. They describe the future activity of God on our behalf. The point is God will accomplish our salvation. Point one, verse one, God will create a new heaven and new earth. We will need a new heaven and a new earth because verse 1 tells us the first heaven and first earth will pass away. The best language seems to indicate a transformation of the present cosmos. There will be a renewed heaven and earth. Paul describes it this way in Romans chapter 8, verse 18 and following. And I want to encourage you to lay hold of this hope that is before us. Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I want to read it again because I want this to land on our hearts and affect our lives. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. 
For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. There will be a transformation. There will be a passing away of the existing order, and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. The problem, of course, is that sin has ruined everything. Sin has impacted every area of the created order, and sin is the big problem. The creation was subjected to futility, and despite all the beauty we see in our world, it is truly remarkable Nevertheless, the whole creation groans under a burden, but this reality shall pass. One of the best phrases in verse 1, and we can sort of read over this and not have it impact us as it ought, is these words, the sea was no more. This means, and grasp this if you can, evil no longer exists. No, no evil in our environment, in our surroundings. There will be no evil. We can seem hopeless now in the face of the onslaught of things that take place in the world, but one day that will no longer be the case. The sea is described as the source of rebellion and chaos. No more evil, only righteousness and goodness. There will be no more natural disasters. There is no more suffering, no more sin, no more temptation to sin, no more Satan or fallen angels, no more hatred of God, no more rebellion. There will only be perfection. Evil has been done away with. Babylon is completely and totally destroyed. Every stain of sin is erased. Every trace of death is gone. Death is no more. No more weeds, thistles, thorns, or jiggers. Only God can do this. Only God can make all things new. It is His work. Commentator William Hendrickson writes, only God can make new. People may vainly imagine that by means of better education, better legislation, a more equitable distribution of wealth, they're going to usher in a new era, a golden age, a utopia of man's ardent desire. Their dream remains a dream. Neither economic nor disarmament conferences, neither better schools nor share the wealth programs are going to bring about a really golden age, a new heaven, a new earth, or a new order. It is only God through His Spirit who makes all things new. So what's the effect on us now? Well, we certainly improve things in this world when we are able to do so, but the main effect on us is desire. How can we not anticipate this coming to pass? No more evil. How can we not long for that day? We say, amen, come Lord Jesus. But wait, there's more. Point two, God will dwell with his people, verses two and three. John sees the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. John hears a voice proclaiming God will dwell with his people. 
This might surprise us because if we know our Bibles, we know that no mere creature can see God. Remember the story of Moses in Exodus 33? Moses says to God, show me your glory. And he said, I'll make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I'll be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. We, in the Old Testament, cannot see God, cannot dwell with him. But we know later in Ezekiel, chapter 37, the ultimate plan of God is to dwell with his people forever. Ezekiel 37, 27, 28, my dwelling place shall be with them. I'll be their God. They shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst. The promise to the people of God is that one day we shall see God and be with God. This is because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. 1 John 3, 2 and 3, beloved. We are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We tend to consider things from our vantage point, and rightfully so. It makes sense to do that. But just for a minute, ponder the heart of God. This is the plan of God from before time begins. This has been what God has in mind, dwelling with His people. But God is looking forward to this moment every bit as much as we are A.W. Tozer in The Attributes of God says, did you ever stop to think that God is going to be as pleased to have you with him in heaven as you are to be there? There's longing and desire in the heart of God for this day, this reality to come to fruition, to come to pass. Now, these words, these pictures are, to my mind, over the top. But they're designed to create in us an appetite and a longing for this day. This day is far beyond anything we can imagine. But the text has more. Point three, verses four and five, God will make all things right. On that day, as we appear before the throne of God, God's love, mercy, and kindness will overflow to us. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Life in a fallen world is hard. The older we get, the more we realize that there's pain and sorrow. People mistreat one another. Christians mistreat one another. There is sickness, abuse, murder. It is tragic. It is so tragic that some people are not able to come to faith in God because they believe that if God were love and if God were strong, surely the world wouldn't be in the condition it is. 
It's one of the things that will be addressed in the bridge course. It costs some people faith because they cannot overcome the tragedies and the hardness of life. Loved ones die. People we appreciate die. And one day we die. I have four sisters, and one of my sisters lost her only two children to cystic fibrosis, ages 10 and 12. Um, the pain of death is indescribable in life, but when it's a child, the noise, the volume amplifies dramatically. It is the norm when a couple loses a child due to death. It is the percentages are huge. Um, the couple ends up separating because the grief, the loss, is so large. Um, there, there is there is no way to describe the grief. My sister, this was back in the 90s, my sister helped me understand how people try to help and the things that can be said that just add to the devastation and the grief in going through it. Um, a year or so after uh, their second child passed, uh, someone said to them, what's up? You're still grieving? What's up with that? Uh, you should be over that. You should be moving on with life. But when you lose a child due to death, there is no moving on. You, you're marked by it um, in your life. My brother-in-law and my sister, these 30 years later, walk with a limp. It's, it's always there. It doesn't somehow ever go away. It is difficult that death is a reality in this life. I've been, many of you know, uh, recently diagnosed with a blood disorder that may become a problem. It, it may be serious. Maybe it'll be fine, but it may be serious. Um, they run this formula, and they put me in this bracket where they say, well, your, your average life expectancy is 8.8 .8 years. Um, you, you, that means 50% of the people don't make it 8.8 .8 years, and 50% go past. And the, the variable seems to be whether it turns into leukemia or not, because when this particular problem turns into leukemia, in the words of the doctor, you won't be with us long <laughs> at that point in time. Um, these, I find these things a bit ironic. I, I turned 69 this year, a couple months. I, I feel like I've had a rich, complete life. I'm like, I'm, I'm good to go. Um, if I was 40, it'd probably be devastating news. But as it is, ah, there's some fatigue to deal with and I'll be fine. Except for one thing. I told Beth the hardest part is possibly leaving her. Because the person going through it has an easier ride than the spouse. It's just hard when you love someone and you lose them. It's hard. And I wish I wasn't 
in a position where I might be facing that. I miss my mom. Uh, my mom died in 2007, and, uh, um, and every now and then, I'm just something like, I just like to sit down with mom and have a 15-minute conversation. Like, I don't even know about what. Like, whatever. Uh, we just like to see her and, and be with her. And if you were fortunate to be raised in a home where parents loved you and, and you loved your parents, doesn't always happen, but that's your experience, you know what it's like to miss your parents. Uh, we know what it's like to encounter death, and it is hard to imagine Death is no more. But up ahead for us, no more mourning, no crying, no pain. The former things have passed away. Can, can you comprehend no more pain? No more crying? That sounds pretty good. Hard to wrap our minds around, is it not? There are folks who live in constant agony, constant pain. And they cannot imagine the day when they're alive and pain is gone. One of my heroes is Johnny Erickson Tata. I saw one conference where she was in her wheelchair and she's saying she can't wait for this day because she wants to dance before the Lord. And, and why not? Would love to see her do that. The promise from the Lord is that God will make all things new, all things Sounds too good to be true, right? All things new. So be careful, but I love this. God knows the weakness of our frame. He knows our doubts. So in verse 5, God says to John, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. There's reassurance that these words are reality. And so, you can bank your life on these promises. 1 Corinthians 2, 9 and 10 says, But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. If you've been grievously wronged in your life at some point, and most of us have, it will be made right. If you have grievously wronged someone, it will be made right. The past will be gone. And because we have this hope that things will be made right one day, you and I right here, right now, can live a life of forgiveness toward others when we're mistreated because we know that this life is not the end of the matter. This life is not the final say. There is a day when God will make all things new and every wrong will be somehow made right when God makes all things new. So we set aside bitterness, anger, wrath, revenge, our rights because we look ahead to the day when all things will be restored as new. Fourth, God will satisfy the thirsty, verses 6 and 7. Verse 6, it is done. This is so certain. This is so sure. This is so lined up 
that John writes as if it has actually happened. The funds are deposited. We're waiting for the check to clear. We wait for it, but it is a sure and certain fact. The Lord reminds us he's the alpha and the omega. He's the beginning and the end. We're told that truth in Revelation 1.8 as well as here. God is in control of history, and it will surely happen. So because God is sovereign... He can make promises, and there are two promises here. First, in verse 6, to the thirsty, there will be given the water of life. Get this, there's no payment because Jesus made that payment on the cross. There's a cost to Jesus, but we look to Jesus in faith, and we repent, and we trust. We repent of our sin, and we trust in him. What's the requirement for salvation as you look at this text? The requirement is thirsty. And we don't make ourselves thirsty. Rather, God works, and there's one day where we wake up spiritually like the prodigal son. We come to our senses, and we find that we are thirsty. God provides the solution. A couple of scriptures to help you see this. Isaiah 55, 1 and 2. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. That's Isaiah 55, 1 and 2. And John 4, 13 and 14, Jesus said to her, the Samaritan woman at the well, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. We'll either satisfy our thirst in the riches of Christ, or we'll look in a million other places trying to satisfy that desire that is within. But when God wakes us up, we see our need for Christ, and we come to him, and so we simply desire the beauty of Jesus. We long for Him because we see that He alone satisfies. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this is from the Lord who is the Spirit, 2 Corinthians 3.18. Then one day, we will see Jesus as he is. We will be face to face with him, beholding him in actuality and reality. So there's the promise of the water of life. Second, as we conquer Satan, the flesh, and the world in this life, we end up in verse 7 with a heritage. We have a heritage. We've been adopted into the family of God. Remember J.I. Packer's summary of the gospel in three words? Adoption through propitiation. We have full rights as a son because we're co-heirs with Jesus. We are equals with him, and that's why we can say we have all things. We're with Jesus, and we are family. We've been reminded throughout Revelation that it's either Jesus or Babylon. We either love Jesus or we love the world Bob Dylan said, there ain't no middle ground, and he's right. 
So, friend, we look to Jesus for life, and it cannot be found in any other place if we are to receive everything that is in Revelation 21. But our text reminds us that not everyone receives the gift of eternal life. Not everyone receives eternal life. Not everyone is family or adopted or receives living water or conquers or has a heritage. The final thing God will do is in verse 8. And here I invite you to examine your life to make sure that you are in the faith. To make sure, as it were, that there's no deception in your heart and in your life. To make sure that you have true standing in Christ. Fifth point, God will judge the faithless, verse 8. Now, it's really sad to leave the glory of verses 1 through 7. I was talking with Aaron yesterday. He said, well, maybe just stop there at verse 7. But I was assigned verse 8 because that's the unit. But I don't want you to lose sight of verses 1 through 7 because it's glorious. But John now gives a warning because he wants everyone there. He gives a warning because he wants to make sure there is no false assurance in the camp. So God's dealt with Babylon. All who worship the beast have met their end. So who is this God is speaking to? There is a catalog of sins given. Mentioned are the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. The cowardly are those who deny Jesus in the face of persecution. Have you ever wondered if there's grace in your life for that time where perhaps uh, you're under the gun, as it were, and persecutions come in your way? God gives grace in the moment, I'm sure, but the cowardly deny Jesus at that point. The faithless simply do not believe the gospel, the detestable practice unnatural sins. Murderers kill innocent lives. The sexually immoral are those who practice sex outside of marriage. A sex is designed by God to be in marriage. Marriage is the fireplace, as it were, and that's where the fire belongs. We don't take the fire out from the fireplace. Sorcerers are those who practice witchcraft. This is often underground. And secrecy. Idolaters are those who worship creation or worship creatures in creation. And liars are those who speak falsely. Their portion will be eternal judgment. But who are they? Commentators say these are folks in the church who profess faith, but their life is inconsistent with that profession. There are practices in their life that are not in keeping with repentance and trust in Christ. John dealt with folks like this when he wrote 1 John. There, John is very concerned about liars. I'll just highlight that one because it's really pervasive. It's, it's, it's overarching. It's, it's conclusive. 
um, John's saying the same thing there that he's saying here. So 1 John 2, 4, whoever says, I know him, Jesus, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. So we're called to keep the commandments of Jesus. Jesus invites us to come, follow him, and he'll make us fishers of men. Come and follow Jesus. So we follow Jesus by keeping his commandments. It's the Great Commission. Go into all the world, make disciples, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So we look at this and we think, whoa, um, I'm not sure I've arrived at perfection. And, and none of us have. None of us are keeping his commandments flawlessly. But, but for the genuine Christian in our heart, there is this growing hatred of sin. We aren't indifferent toward it. We aren't comfortable with it. Uh, we don't just confess sin and confess sin and confess sin. We grow in hating sin and putting it to death because it is truly our heart's desire to keep His commandments. So when we fall, we repent and we get back up and we press on. And we repent as 50 times a day if need be. But repent we must because we are not yet in the celestial city. We must keep His commandments. That's the orientation of our heart. 1 John 2.22, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? That's the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. So we hold that Jesus is the Christ. 1 John 4.20, if anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. The biggest indicator in our life for our love of God is the way we treat our fellow humans. It's the greatest indicator. We can't say, oh, I love God. I've got this wonderful heart for God while I'm mistreating people, while I'm sinning against people. John says, that doesn't line up. That's not a true reality. That's your deception. It's a figment of your imagination. But John says, liar, if we're in that situation. 1 John 5, 10 to 12. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he's not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Verse 12, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. It is understandable that those who've never heard the gospel do not believe. We certainly commend folks who are doing their best to take the gospel to places that it's never been, where Jesus has, has never been named. We love to support things like that. But how tragic is it to be in the church, hearing the gospel, singing about the gospel, professing faith, and yet turning away from Jesus. How tragic is that? 
So Jesus himself in Luke 6, 46 and following says, why do you call me Lord, Lord and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, hears and does, same thing as James 1, I will show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Our salvation is by faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone. But real, true, genuine salvation is adorned by good works. And there is a hatred of sin growing in our lives. The Apostle Paul put it this way, Titus 1.16, they profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. There's a profession of mouth, but the reality of the heart is that it is not there. They deny Him by their works. Paul says they are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So John is making his final plea and appeal to turn from sin. And I want us to think about this this morning as we ponder our lives. In Hebrews 10, 26 and 27, there is one of the most serious scriptures I know. It is sobering. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, so this is deliberately, this is a choice, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. So John's making his final appeal. The final appeal is, if you're in that catalog of sins, if you're in that list, the final appeal is turn and repent, turn from your sin, find true freedom in Christ. His joke is easy. His burden is light. There is a lightness. There is a freedom that is only found in Christ. And so we come to Him and we follow Him. And of course, we're drawn by love. So to those of you who are in Christ, and so far as I know, the vast majority of you are, if you're in Christ, then you rejoice to hear the words in this Scripture. God will create a new heaven and a new earth. God will dwell with us. God will make all things right. And God will satisfy the thirsty. All good, and we look forward to it expectantly. But this text says God will judge those who are pretending to be His people, but in fact are not. God will judge folks like that. So I want to share my testimony with you. And young people, please pay attention. I was raised in a godly Christian family, had every benefit in my upbringing. My parents clothed me, fed me, uh, kept me warm, and took me to church uh, Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. Thank you very much. And um, I knew what godliness was. I knew the truth of Scripture. When I'm 13, I'm at a meeting where they called it a revival at my church, where they had a week-long sort of a renewal. 
meeting and the preacher's preaching from Matthew 24 and 25 and the wailing and gnashing of teeth. And I knew I didn't want that. So I chose the other door. The other door was Jesus. And I went forward at that meeting. And I did have a sense of my sins being forgiven. But then, at the age of 13, and for what I would describe as like the next 10 years, I pretty much did my own thing. Now, my own thing wasn't bad. I was considered a good kid, a good guy. So there, there wasn't trouble the way some would love to go toward trouble. Uh, I just had a good time in life, and I was doing what I wanted to do. Absolutely doing what I wanted to do, whatever, whatever a good time was. And uh, then I heard a sermon that rocked my world, that changed my life. This sermon said that Jesus is Lord. Now, I was quite willing to have Jesus as Savior because who doesn't want their sins forgiven? Everybody wants their sins forgiven, of course. But in this sermon, I learned that Jesus is Lord. And the question was put to me. This was on, like, I think a cassette tape, if I remember right. I think it was after 8-track. Um, the question was put to me, who is on the throne of your heart? And it was like, I didn't have to think two seconds. I knew who was on the throne of my heart. I was. I was doing what I wanted to do. Uh, was not primarily concerned with growing in godliness. Certainly wasn't being discipled by anyone. But look, I had the Bible. I'm, I'm putting this on me, fair, fair and square. I didn't um, want Jesus as Lord in those years. But upon hearing that message and realizing that Jesus can't be divided, you don't get to say, I'll take the 50% of Jesus that forgives my sins. But that 50% Jesus is Lord thing, well, I'm just going to hang in the middle on that one. Jesus is 100%. Jesus is one. We take him or we don't take him as he is. And I want to exhort all of us to consider who is on the throne of your heart? Who are you following? So let me ask you, are you in Christ? Are you in Christ? Those 10 years when I was in between, and I have no idea if I was converted at 13 or not. I, I mean, maybe I was in process. I, I don't know. But when I would hear a gospel invitation, I'd be sitting there thinking, I should go forward. Like something isn't right. I should go forward. But I was like, I did that once. I'm not going to do that again and again and again. That makes no sense to me biblically. So I can't, can't go there. But, but upon profession of faith that Jesus is Lord, perhaps I experienced assurance of salvation. But at that point, I knew I was in Christ. Doubts disappeared. There was a certainty in life that I was in Christ. And I would love for you to have that certainty. So I want to ask you, does that list of sins describe you? Are you on that list? I pray not, because what John says is your plight. I want to exhort you to flee temptation, because God always provides a way out. God gives grace. I have a friend that ministers in Nepal, he ends up on roads because he's given me pictures. He's invited me there, and I've said never. Um, he ends up on roads that I promise you I'll never be on because I have wisdom. You don't go on these roads. So, so there, 
He had one of a bus they were taking from one city to another. And they're on this cliff, and like the rear axle had two tires on each side. Like the one tire was out over the cliff. And he showed me a picture of what's over the cliff. And it's just, I don't know, 2,000, 3,000, I don't know. It didn't matter. Five miles. It's just straight down. And if you go, <laughs> it's over, right? That's it at that point. And so all the people get out of the bus, except for the driver. I don't know what's wrong with him. He, the driver stays in, and they're carefully navigating this corner, and I'm just thinking, um, no way. There's no way. I'll tell you where I'll be. I'll be against the cliff, the mountainside, far away from the cliff. I don't want any parts of that. I'm, I'm serious. I don't enjoy heights. I'm, I'm nowhere near that. Our approach to sin is a bit like that. Um, you don't want to get close to sin. You don't see how close you can get because there's a danger that you end up with habitual practice that John is describing in this section of Scripture. It's a real concern. In The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis writes about a lead character who has a little red lizard perched on his shoulder. He coddles it, cozies up to it, draws near. The lizard is seeking to prevent growth in godliness and sanctification. The process will be painful, so he wants to back out of it, finally relents, and grows in godliness. So, friends... I exhort you to consider if you're on this list that John gives, I believe, I pray, I hope most of us are not, but then we fight temptation as well. We're vigilant, we're diligent in fighting sin because there truly is a sort of slippery soap. So what do we do about remaining sin in believers? Well, it's covered by the blood, but we don't, therefore, cozy up to it and get comfortable with it. Rather, we seek to kill it, to distance ourselves, to find life because we are not comfortable with sin. We hate it. So let me close. Christian, we don't fix our eyes on sin. We fix our eyes on Jesus. Jesus is the one we long to be with. We live in the world, but we're not of the world. We set our minds on things above, not on things here on this earth, because things on this earth are temporal. They're going away. They don't deliver life. We take up our cross daily, and we follow Jesus joyfully and gladly, and we do so from a position of peace and rest, because we are family. Our eyes are fixed on heaven because Jesus is there and we want to be with him very much. What a day that's going to be. Encourage you to read this section of Scripture again and look at those promises of what will be. What a day that will be. You won't want to miss it. I'm going to pray and like to ask the worship team to come forward. Lord, this section of Scripture is exhilarating on one hand. As we contemplate, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more death. It's exhilarating, and yet it's sobering because 
we see that not everyone is included. Lord, I pray. Pray that you would draw each person listening, no matter their age. Pray that you would draw each person to you. Pray that not one would be lost. Pray that all would come to faith in Christ and find their delight in Him. And I pray that there'd be a growing hatred of sin in our hearts and lives so that we put it off for your glory. Lord, help us to see this reality and to live with anticipation, to long for your return, to long to be with you because you are our all in all. All things are summed up in Christ and we are grateful and we thank you for our salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.